Well, um, what, some of you may know that uh, my, um, my father's actually a, a minister, that uh, about 13 years into his career, he uh, left, he was an engineer, and he became the minister of our church. And uh, so, and, and we lived actually right, we, at that time I was four, we moved to the, uh, to the, the parsonage that was next to the on-church property. And so I literally grew up uh, at church and played ball hockey in the parking lots there and broke some of the windows there and was there for junior high and senior high. And our junior high kids this week, this, this week just had their 30-hour famine all-nighter. So thank you for you junior high leaders for staying up all night. Uh, and I remember doing that in our church. And so everything about church was, it was fully integrated into my life in, in the best sense of, of, of the phrase. And, um, and so there's many things that are in church that are very familiar to me, but that as a, as if, if you're new to church or maybe your first time at this church or this is the first church you ever attended to, there's some things that you would find weird. And perhaps one of the strangest ones is this thing we call worship. Some of you uh, have seen people in this church who, you know, like they're very physically expressive in worship. Maybe they, maybe they close their eyes, and some of them are, you know, like Kevin James Wright Hitch. This is where you live. Some of them are just like kind of right here, and 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 some of you are kind of like this. Some of you will break the plane kind of over your shoulder, and some of you are like literally are trying to get taken up into heaven. And the rest of you are like, why are they doing that? That's so strange. And if you didn't grow up in that kind of a thing, the whole thing can look strange to you. It's an expression of worship. Now, let me just say, sort of. For myself, I kind of came by that um, honestly because it wasn't just something sort of that happened at church. We did it at home. So I have a video that I want to show you of, our, of, our, of this thing that we would do every week at our home. It was our family night. It was kind of we'd get together and play games, whatever, and, and then we'd, we'd have kind of family devotion time where we'd sing and, and read, our, uh, read a Bible together. So there's no sound in it, so I'm going to narrate it for you, but I want to just give you a little window into my life growing up and, and how this was sort of normal for me. is uh, old eight millimeter footage. There's my sister. So she's a sort of moderately conservative hand clapper. There's me. I was a full-on charismatic. Yeah. I was very focused. And there's my dad, just giving it. Yeah. He's totally lost there. And that, that could be just minus the sideburns and a little more white hair. That's still him today. Um, now, so that's so this is sort of normal for me. It was kind of what, uh, what I, now, what I thought uh, was that that was what worship was, that it, that it was singing and, and maybe reading our Bible and sort of being, uh, you know, expressive to God, which, of course, in one, one aspect it is. But I sort of thought, well, that's what worship is. And, and we do it at church. People who are church people uh, worship. Um, people who are Christians worship. And then as I grew up, I thought, oh, okay, well, it's not just that. There's, there's people who worship the living God, and then they worship, and then there's people who worship other gods, and they worship, and then there's people who don't worship at all. One of the things I've realized, though, is I've continued to read the Bible and continue to understand a little bit more about myself and about the way the world works is that realize that worship is actually not a religious thing at all. And if you've been in this church for any period of time, you've heard me say this before, that worship is just a, it's a human thing. That in every one of us is the instinct to praise. Now, we wouldn't, for much of our lives and much of ourselves, we wouldn't call it worship, but that's what it is. It's, it's, worship comes from the old English word worthship, which means to ascribe worth to something. Now, we don't use the word ascribe or really worth, and what does that mean? It means to give praise. That worship is anything that we find praiseworthy, that we talk about and say, that's amazing, that's incredible, I love that. 
anything that we find to be delightful to our souls, in a sense that gives us joy, is, is something that we are worshiping. Anything that we might, even to use worship language, make sacrifices for. Things that we are pursuing because they are of what they give, they give us. In a sense, it is the instinct, human being, not religi- religious or not, to worship, to find something or someone that is praiseworthy, that is commendable, that we like to be expressive about, that we grab someone else and say, you gotta see this. You know, whether it's spectator sports or anything that's beautiful or whether it's a job or a pastime or uh, nature, whatever it is, there's things that we love to give praise to. There's things that we love to take in. Many of you love to travel because you, if you love to travel, you love to see things in a sense it does something for you to be out and seeing, uh, you know, beautiful places in the world. It's, it's an act of worship while you're trying to take it in because it does something for your soul. And and if you're verbal, you might verbally sort of express it. If you're relational, you want to experience it with someone else. If you're uh, contemplative, you're going to journal about it, take pictures about it, reflect on it after. Anything that we find delightful. And then there are things that we would make sacrifices for, that we find to be uh, worth our time, our money, our energy, that we are, in a sense, sacrificing to this thing that we are worshiping. So worship is a, is a human being thing. Now, you might say, okay, fine. Like, you know, I call it a hobby. You call it worship, potato, potato. What, what is that? What difference does that make? Well, there's something so unique if you buy my proposition, in a sense, that we are all worshipers, that we all worship something. There's something about worship that you need to know that is true about every one of us. And Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, the American poet said this, the gods we worship... Write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And a man will worship something. That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Someone said it this way, that the worth of your own soul is determined by the object of your affection. You can measure the worth and weight of your own soul by the, by the worth and weight of the object of your affection because we are becoming like what we worship. And the thing is, is that what we worship has the potential to either enhance our soul or diminish it. If we are worshiping something that is worthy of worship, our own soul is enlarged. If we worship something that is not worthy of our worship, our time, our energy, our commendation, the sacrifices we made, make, then in a sense our own souls are diminished. Why? Because we are becoming more like what we worship. Let me give you some examples. Someone who uh, enjoys their job, which is a good thing. They find fulfillment in what they do. But perhaps that, that woman loves her job so much that it becomes her sort of sole determinant of how she's doing in life that the, the value or the accommodation or the feedback she's getting in her workplace is, is what feeds her soul. And so, therefore, when it's, the praise is coming, she is drawn in more. If it's not coming, she is driven to work harder to get it. That what determines her value is what her peers think about it or her last review, whatever the title is uh, on the top of her uh, resume, they could say the letters that are at the end of her name on the business card, wherever she's saying that she's become the youngest woman ever to or the only woman ever to, and that becomes now her soul's, uh, in a sense, delight. In a sense, worship is our soul's currency. 
And so it is the place that she is spending. And she continues to spend and continues to spend herself and begins to make sacrifices in every other aspect of life because this now is the thing that has gone from good to God because she is worshiping it. It is delighting her. In a sense, what will happen to an individual, man or woman, that pursues that way? What will happen to one's own soul, to relationships, to a perspective, to a healthy view of oneself? It will begin to diminish because something that is good has been taken and made an ultimate object of worship, and the person who worships it in the, in the end is diminished in their own soul because of it. Take beauty. A man who loves beautiful women, and he marries a beautiful woman, but you know, he doesn't like the fact that that beauty is fading over time, even though he doesn't notice his own beauty is fading over time. And so he continues to pursue beauty, whether it's what he looks at when he's out with his buddies or on the computer or when he's on a business trip. And beauty begins to be, or an image of what he thinks beautiful is, begins to transfix his mind and heart. What will happen? He will become addicted to the thing that he is worshiping. And he will make sacrifices which he shouldn't make. He will bend values that he thought he would never make for. Why? Because this thing is the thing that is ultimate for him. When we take some, because we are all driven to worship, we cannot help it, to take something but, and make it that which ultimately isn't worthy of all of our worship and all of our sacrifice, it begins to diminish us as we worship it. What's more, and we have all had this experience, is, is what economists call the law of decreasing returns to scale. In other words, the more you invest in something, the less you get from it. The curve goes like this. Therefore, it takes more and more to deliver less and less. Any appetite that we have, and you notice this in, in, in your workplace, any kind of review, how long, how long does that great review last until the next one? And it's a what have you done for me lately kind of mentality both out there and in here, and we begin, we're driven by it, and we need to keep going. Whether it's money or sex or anything, food, the more we have, the more it takes to deliver the hit that we first once got from it. So worship is not only this instinctive thing that we can't help, our soul's currency, that we have to spend it somewhere, but we inevitably spend it on things that have the potential to actually diminish the soul of the worshiper, partly because it takes more and more to get less and less. So what do we do if we are people who are bound and driven, hardwired to worship, to find something that our souls delight in, to find some place to spend our soul's currency, and yet that the things that we potentially could would in the end diminish us, that we would make too many sacrifices for, and that there is a diminishing returns on the things that we worship, what are we to do? This is part of the rescue that is offered us in Jesus that where we are at in the story of Scripture is that we are, we are studying the life uh, and through the biography, one of the biographies of Jesus saying this is the one who has come to rescue us. And part of our understanding of Jesus is to say, well, what are all the things that he rescues us from? And, and in a sense, where we are in the story is leading up to this crescendo that, it, that it puts a cap on all of these things that says, look, ultimately Jesus has rescued us for worship. And it's Palm Sunday, and so we're going to read from a passage that is about that. It's called the Triumphal Entry. It's in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus is now, has been teaching and in his public ministry and is now moving towards Jerusalem, which is the center of sort of Jewish thought and culture and faith. And Jesus, after he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. 
As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, they were towns just surrounding Jerusalem on the hill near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead of him went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Evidently, that was enough. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, coming down into Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These are Old Testament scriptures they were quoting. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, or the religious leaders in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, shut them up. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You gotta imagine this scene as Jesus is coming in. It says he's collected now, it says a whole bunch of disciples and not just the 12 disciples that we've known, but a whole mass of followers. And this, this is how it worked in those days is that rabbis were teachers who would come along and they would you know, demonstrate usually by their aptitude, their, their understanding of scripture that they would teach and people would say, oh, I, wanna be, you, I want you to mentor me, kind of is what they were saying. And they would follow around these teachers and there were many of them and they all had disciples. Now, Jesus had this growing sort of, he wasn't the first rabbi to come along and say some things that people found interesting, but the way he taught was so uh, unparalleled. And in fact, he taught in such a way that took some of the way that the religious leaders had been teaching the scriptures to kind of put a heavy burden on people, and he was lifting the religious burden off people left, right, and center, so they loved him. He was talking about God, but he was talking about God in a whole new way, and so there's many who are following because of that. Along with that, he's doing miraculous things, things that people had never seen before. People who had been crippled for life being healed, lepers who were uh, people ostracized, sent out of, uh, of the city. He was touching them and making them totally clean. He was raising people from the dead, and so people are following him. Not only that, though, he was more compassionate and open and welcoming than any they had ever known. What they knew about the religious people, religious people were always like, well, there's us and them, and they kept everyone, who has, whoever them was, away. And Jesus was always breaking down all of those social barriers, and the religious leaders were so mad at him for dismantling all of these careful walls that they had constructed between sinners and not sinners, as if there was such a thing, Jesus said. And so they loved him because the way he taught, because the way he, he, he worked, and the way he loved people. And so now he's coming down to the city, and they're hoping that this is going to be the man who's going to finally liberate us from Rome, and everything we've seen tells us there's no, there's no other person like him ever. He's coming down in the city, and now his disciples are just getting so excited, and it says they're bursting out in song. Now, us guys, you know what? But Somebody said this too. Like, North American men, we, we got a problem. We don't know how to sing. You know, you go to Europe and soccer games, like, they know how to sing, right? Men in Europe know how to sing. We, what's wrong? We're European influence. How come we don't know how to sing? You can't imagine these guys at the top of their lungs just shouting and praising him, and they were using, like, really bold language. I mean, in another passage, it says they were saying, Hosanna, which means, God, you save us. But then here it says, you are king and you are lord loaded political religious terms and they're throwing them out and it, and it wasn't just their words it says they throw their cloaks under the feet of this 
mule that he's riding. Now the cloak, especially for the disciples who were, they were traveling with him. In that time and in that culture and that climate, the nights got very cold. So what you had and needed was a cloak. And you usually only had one. It wasn't a cheap piece of clothing. And so it was really, for people who were traveling with him, it was their only possession. It was their only thing of worth. And this picture of they're throwing down the thing that is most valuable to them under the feet of the donkey he's riding on. This is a, a picture of people who are, in a sense, giving what was most valuable to him. They're throwing it down. They were worshiping him. It says, for all that he had done. Now, the religious leaders are not happy with this. And they said, you should rebuke them. Now, think about this for a second. Anybody ever tells you that Jesus was, he was a good man, he was influential, but he was humble, he was kind of like Gandhi, but he wasn't God? You need to think about this for a second. If this was Gandhi or the Dalai Lama, keeps coming up in our services, <laughs> he would have said, no, 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 guys, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't call me king and lord. Don't, throw, don't worship me. I'm just a man like you. That's not what he said. He totally received it. And when the Pharisees said, you should not be receiving this, you should tell them to be quiet. Do you know what he says? If they stop, even the rocks will cry out. In other words, all of creation worships me. It's a bold statement. They could be silent. All of creation worships me. Everything that you see around you has been made to worship me. That's what he said. So I'm not going to tell them to be silent. I'm going to receive it. They were calling him king, not just savior, not just Hosanna, you save us, but king, Lord. In other words, you are fit to rule my life. And he receives it. Now, how does this not make Jesus the most arrogant megalomaniac ever to walk the earth? Look what happens next. It says he comes to the city and he sees the city and he weeps over it. Why is he crying? Someone who is receiving, a proud person receiving praise does not cry. A proud person who says, everything in this world worships me. Why is he crying over that city? But he says, Jerusalem, if you had only known what would bring you peace. They were tears of compassion. Why? Because Jesus knew then, and he knows now, that you and I and all of Jerusalem and all those people around them are hardwired to worship. We cannot help but give our soul's currency and then our actual currency and our time and our energy to something or someone. And Jesus knows that the only thing that will not diminish us when we do that is him. These are not the words of someone who needs anything from us. He even said, if, the, if these guys be silent, the rocks will cry out. In other words, creation is always giving me praise. I don't need you to do it. So why does he ask us to do it? Why was he weeping over a city that had ultimately rejected him, right? He was going to Jerusalem, which, where, what was going to happen? They were going to reject him and crucify him. He was weeping over a city that had said, we don't want to worship you. And if he didn't need it, why was he crying? Because he wanted something for them. He didn't need anything from them. It's the tears of one who knows anything less will destroy you. 
if you worship, if you give your soul's currency to something that isn't worth the currency you have, it will diminish you and you will get less and less from it and ultimately you will become enslaved by something that you thought was worthy of your worship. And so he cries tears over us. This is the heart of God, not just then but now, that in a sense the tears of Jesus are, are weep for us to say, I want something for you so badly. In scripture it talks about the jealous love of God. Now jealousy is unbecoming and inappropriate in any kind of human terms and in human relationships jealousy always comes from insecurity, right? because I want something that you're not giving me or I want something that I don't have, but it, God who needs nothing from us, the jealousy of God is what? It is him who dies to see us in the arms of another lover. That's the tears of Jesus, saying, I want you to find so much the one thing that will not use you up, that when you spend yourself on it, you receive even more than what you spent, not less and less. I want you to find the one thing that will delight your soul, the thing that your soul was made to delight in, the thing that, the reason why you have to spend it on everything else, because nothing is big enough to fill that hole and the capacity you have to worship. Except me. Pastor John Piper in, uh, in Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis said uh, uh, years ago there was a, a, a teenage a boy in his church who was struggling with just insecurity and you know, all the things that many of us go through in teenage years and feeling awkward about himself and whatever. And he wrote a letter to John Piper just saying, how do I figure this out with God and how I feel about myself? And Piper wrote from his own experience about feeling a very awkward, sort of stuttering, pimply-faced teenager, didn't think anything good was gonna come his way. And he talked to him about how his own soul began to be free. And here's what he said, just a portion of the letter he wrote to him. This is what he said to this boy. Self is simply too small to satisfy the exploding longings of my heart. In other words, when we're obsessed in ourselves, it's not enough. I wanted to taste and see something great and wonderful and beautiful and eternal. It started with seeing nature and it ended with seeing God. It started in literature and ended in Romans and Psalms. It started with walks through the grass and woods and lagoons and ended in walks through the high plains of theology. Not that nature and literature and grass and woods and lagoons disappeared, but they became more obviously copies and pointers. The heavens are telling the glory of God. When you move from the heavens to the glory of God, the heavens don't cease to be glorious, but they are undeified. In other words, they are shown to be not God's. When you discover what they are saying, all of creation is pointing. What is the sunrise and the sunset shouting about so happily? Their maker. They are beckoning us to join them. Do you see? Everything, some of you are nature buffs. You know that song that Kurt led us in earlier, right? When it says, you know, all um, the rising moon and praise rejoice and ye lights of evening find a voice. Some of you that are aesthetic nature people are like, yes, you're like dying that you're even sitting in here on a beautiful day like it is out there. Worship draws you. It pulls you. For others of you, it's, it's relationships. You love being with people. You're so energized. You're exhausted at the end of the week, but the first thing you think to do is call someone to see who you can hang out with. Others of you are contemplative, you just love time alone or you love a good story or a good movie. Others of you love food and taste, things that are aesthetic and, and tangible. They are all signposts, pointers. They're not destinations to camp out and say, this is ultimate reality, this is God. 
you know, the nations that, that Israel was surrounded at the time, they worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars because they were so captivating and they thought, these must be gods, they're so beautiful. Now whether it's the sun or the moon or the stars or your lover or your best friend or your favorite job or your best pastime, they are all signposts pointing you to the one who will not diminish you if you worship it. It is Jesus. Now, ask, now let me ask you, how is this possible? How is it possible that Jesus could be our soul's full delight? How is it possible that everything else, and by the way, everything else is rigged to point you to him. Any, every one of those things, any one of those things can blow up in our faces. And those of you that, are, that have run to God and many times in your life, why? It's what happened is because the thing you were worshiping blew up in your face and you suddenly realized, this can't hold me. This is not worth my weight. I have spent all my currency on this and I'm bankrupt and I have nothing to show for it. And it suddenly made you realize there must be more. They're all rigged to get you to the one. Now, how is he the one? Because think about this. Every one of us in our deepest longing was wired to love and be loved. I don't care whether you're jaded by love, you've given up on love, you feel like you've moved past on it. Every one of us, you know how I know? I see this with my kids. They are bottomless pits for love. They cannot get enough. I can spend an entire weekend with them and playing, and I'm done. I'm so tired, like beaten up, wrestling. I have boys, all they want to do is wrestle and play sports. <laughs> and at the end, time for bed. Oh, what? Five more minutes, 10 more minutes. Now you grow older, start to realize your parents aren't the heroes you thought they were, or you have other interests, and what happens? Distance starts to grow, but at a, at a, in, a, in our truest sense in our youngest sense we have a capacity to love and then as we grow we want the affections of you know a friend boyfriend girlfriend marriage partner we are all hardwired for love and you think about those times as a child or if you have children you see it in them or those times when you were falling in love you could you did ridiculous things you know some of you foolishly set the bar way too high in your courtship and now you can't deliver i'm just kidding <laughs> You're on the phone. To, I remember when Jen and I were first dating, we're on the phone till like five in the morning. I'd get up three hours later and go to work and work a 12-hour day. Like, I'm sure that my productivity, you couldn't possibly keep that up, but you hope that it would, right? You never want to let go uh, of those moments. Why? There's something so thrilling and exhilarating. There's nothing like love. We were made to love. We have a longing and a yearning for it. Whether we have it to hang on to it or whether we don't have it and we're trying to keep it or whether we feel like we're losing it. And Jesus does not come to us as a as propositional truth, as a set of rules, as an idea. He comes as a person to love us and for us to love him in return. Now imagine being in a relationship with someone where the love never faded. Love fades over time because we find out we're all sinners and our sin hurt each other. But imagine being in a relationship where you were never hurt by the other person's sin, where every new thing you found out about them, you love them even more every new thing you found out about them, right? The closer we get to each other, the, the less enamored we are, we find with each other, right? Because we see, but imagine the closer you got, the more you found, you think, this can't be true. I've struck it rich. <laughs> I'm gonna tell anyone. The closer you get, the more enamored you get. And now imagine also this, that the closer you got to them, the more you became the person you always wanted to be. 
that your own soul was enlarged and you were delighting more and more because every new discovery thrilled you more than the last one. Imagine a relationship like that. People say, it's too good to be true. It's only found in one place. Only God come to us in the flesh could deliver on that. A love relationship where every new discovery takes you deeper and makes you become more and more the person you long to be but didn't know how you would ever make yourself that way. That's how he can be our soul's true delight. That's how he can be our soul's greatest affection. That's how he can be the one thing that we can spend all our currency, soul's currency on and not be bankrupt, but actually be enhanced. He is the one thing worthy of everything you have to give. So now think about this. If you're a Christian, if you're somebody who says, yeah, Bija, I am. I'm a worshiper of God. I want to read you a quote from Helmut Thielicke. He's a German theologian. And he wrote this. This is for those of you that are Christians. There are really only two ways to take a thing seriously. Either you renounce it or you risk everything for it. There is no third choice. The kind of Christian who's merely conservative and those who want only the Christian point of view those people want this third choice which doesn't exist. Throw your Christianity on the trash heap or else let God be the Lord of your life. Yeah, heavy. He's not just Savior who saves me from my sins. He is what the disciples said about him, Lord and King. Every one of us has the Lord, a Lord of our lives. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself a worshiper or not. We are all ruled by the thing that we delight in. We are all lorded over by the thing we serve with our time and our money and our energy. And so Jesus is the one that not only we call Savior, but also King and Lord, the only one fit to be the Lord of my life because he's the only one who won't use me up. He's the only one that if I serve him, I will become more of who I am. I become more free and less enslaved. Everything else that I supposedly think I'm free to choose, I become ultimately enslaved to. That's why he's not just Savior, but Lord and King. Now, some of you would say, well, I haven't said yes to that. Now I'm pretty sure I don't want to. You're exploring who is Jesus, but let me tell you what you're exploring. You're exploring whether it's worth, whether it's true enough to take your affections, your soul's currency, which you spend on a whole bunch of other things, and take them and put them at his feet. That's what you're trying to find out. Is he really worthy of worship? Is he really the one thing that will not use me up? Is it really true if I look at every other part of my life that everything else that I give myself to in the end ultimately takes more from me than it gives and has the potential to enslave me or perhaps has blown up in my face and I've realized this was just a signpost, not a destination. Is that really true? Ask yourself. That's what you're trying to find out. You know, he is that for me. That's why I'm here. It's why I'm any semblance of someone that I even remotely like is because he is making me more into the person I thought I could never become and didn't know how to do it. He is the one that has become more and more delightful to me as the years have gone on. That the more I have discovered, the more I'm in love. And I was sitting here praying for my son and saying, God, like, let him see you for who you are in this book. It'll be the greatest thing I could ever hope for him. This is what it means to call him Lord and King. So I want to ask you, you know, where are you spending 
your soul's currency on. We are all, you know, we're all, we all drift, right? This is, you know me enough, I've said enough from the front of this room to know that I spend my soul's currency on other things too that use me up. There's a drift. What's happening in your life? And I just thought there's maybe three areas, and this may not cover all of you, but some of you may find yourself someone in there. There are some of us who are spending, we are obsessed with beauty and our sex, and at the risk of overgeneralizing as, and the sexes, let me just say this, that as women, we, you are growing up, you're living in a culture that has so idolized a certain form of beauty. And many of you are obsessed with that as you look in the mirror every day, and you are making a judgment call on yourself or others have, or you're trying to hang on so tightly to what you once have, and as you grow older, you know it just, you have to fight so hard just to keep it. That that is the thing that you are spending, maybe not money on, but soul currency on. Making yourself, or trying to keep yourself as beautiful as you can. For guys, we have become a culture that is so worshiped, the female body, till we have completely objectified women. And so many men are addicted to porn because of that. And you just think, oh, that's just a bad thing. I just got to get over it. You don't got to get over it. You got to realize your soul, you're spending currency there because you want something from it. It's making you feel alive or in control or whatever it is, and there's only one person that can do that for you. It's not the ultimate image of a woman. It's Jesus. So if you're a woman, stop feeling thinking that you should think better about yourself, that that's the solution. And a man, if you're thinking, if that's you, you're stuck in that, that, oh, I just have, I'm just bad, I gotta do something else. No, you gotta find Jesus. You gotta say, hey, wait a second, Jesus, I'm spending currency on stuff that's using me up. For some of you, it's your job that you live and die by, either the one you have or the one you want to have. Maybe you're riding high on that right now and it, it's filling you. And you realize at the end of the day, why do I feel good or bad? It's because of whatever happened during that day. Or maybe you're approaching retirement, you're starting to think, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself because my whole life has been that. That Jesus is saying, that's, that's just a signpost. It's good if you enjoy your work. That's a blessing, but it's just a signpost that you were meant to find fulfillment and recognition and commendation. It is his words that say, you are good that is the ultimate determinant of your value, not whatever happened in your last review or on the shop floor that day. And then for some of us, all of us longing for love, either, either the love that you are seeking that you haven't found yet or, or one that you feel is you are, you are spending currency and you're not getting anything back. Perhaps you're in a marriage where you feel like you're doing all the pulling, you're spending all the currency and nothing's coming back. Or in a relationship with a child where you're frustrated or you, you know, and maybe they're drifting apart or maybe it's an older child that you don't see as much and you wish that they would show more love to you. It's love you want to have and don't have and trying to hang on to. To realize that your soul is longing to love and be loved. And there is only one who will never leave, who gives us back far more than we could ever spend on him. It's Jesus. Any of these things are happening, they're, if they're good, they're signposts. If they're blowing up in your face, you're reminded you were rigged. You were never meant to camp out here and make this ultimate reality. And so I want to give you a prayer to pray. If you're in the space to pray it, um, we'll just say it together. If you're not able to say it, honestly, that's totally fine. But if, if you're there, if this is your heart's desire, say, yeah, I'm not there, but I want to be there. So, so often I just sing the worship song saying, God, I'm not there, but I want to be there, so I'm singing this to you. So let's pray this together if, if you can. Savior, 
Rescue me from worshiping things which aren't able to fully satisfy. King, rule my life with your wisdom, power, and love. Lord, lead me to find my soul's greatest delight in you alone. You know that song that the worship team led us in earlier? It says, it's only in your will that I am free. We can see Jesus call to us to worship him as something that, oh no, he's going to enslave me. He wants me to worship him. He's going to trap me. This is the opposite of freedom. And yet it's in his very life, in worshiping the only thing that actually releases us to be who we were meant to be, that it's only in his will that we are truly free. This is for freedom that we have been called to worship. So I want to pray that over you, and then the team's going to come and just lead us in response to that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that it's only in your will that we are free because you are the only one who will give us back far more than we could ever spend on you. You are the only thing that if we set you as our heart's desire, we will not be diminished, but we will actually grow. We will become the person, the man or woman we so long to be. Only you. Everything else good in our lives, if it is good, is a signpost to you. And so I pray that even as we have prayed those words this morning, they don't come true in our lives because we are sincere. They come true because you are faithful. It is your faithfulness in our lives that brings us closer to you. So even as we have said that to you as with as much faith as we can muster this morning, hear our words and set us free. We thank you for your word and your life, Jesus, and that you came to rescue us for this very thing. It is in your mighty name, that we gladly pray then. Amen. Would you stand together? Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> I think I just want to bless you with that whatever God did in your heart this morning, that he would just put his hand over it and keep it there and not let it fly away on wings of worry or distraction or fear or doubt, whatever he did, I just want to bless you with the hands of God just sealing that over your heart. He is both the author and perfecter of faith so we can ask him to do something that we couldn't do by ourselves. So I want to bless you with his hands holding over you whatever he did, that it would take root and it would bear fruit. Amen? Thanks for coming. We'll see you at the 30-minute party.